Bet365 sponsors The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast brought to you by The Athletic. And they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. The domestic season returns at the weekend with the Community Shield, and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook, and with Charlie away on holiday today, I'm joined by James Moore, and we're doing a mailbag special. We asked readers for questions. We got 93 responses. Thank you very much to everyone who sent one in. I'm afraid we can't read them all today, but we're going to get through as many as we can in our allotted time. Got a good one to start off with from Brian D. What are you most excited or interested to see in the new All or Nothing documentary that will air on August 31st? Oof. What do you reckon, James? Uh, I mean, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit last week, but I definitely I'm interested to see who is who is the banter king in that dressing room. I mean, I, as we've said before, banter is the kind of glue that holds football together. Um, and I know you're a staunch advocate of it, Jack. Oh yeah, you know, there's a few in there. You think like Deli Ali must be kind of involved in that sort of stuff. And we've seen this clip from last week of him talking about chocolate bars, which is, um, I mean, it's you know, it's interesting, but. It's not. It's not quite what I'm looking for. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'd be, I'm keen to see whether there's someone in in that dressing room who's doing like practical jokes and the extent to which uh, they go too far. Because any office or workplace based prankster will inevitably push it too far. So that, that's what I'm keen to see. I mean, Aurier definitely sounds like a contender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've kind of got no idea. I think. Aurier and Delhi seem to be like the most fun. Yeah. I think I kind of get the impression that Vertonghen. And Dyer are quite. I think. I think Vertonghen is smart and probably quite good at like yeah. put down put downs and banter that like maybe not all the other of his teammates will be able to instantly put, pick up on. And to be honest, I'd be lying if I. I'd be lying if I didn't say that I'm looking forward to seeing where uh, like I will be in the in this show. Uh, only oh, the, I'm going to sound incredibly arrogant here, but I know they were filming at press conferences, so I wonder whether or not. Any footage of those will have you know me and some other journalists in, and uh, you know it is always exciting to see yourself on television, that sort of thing. Like, uh, you hoping one of your great questions is going to make it into the dot? Well, I I don't know. I mean, I'd be surprised. What was it he called you? What what, memory guy wasn't it? Mourinho. uh, uh, I think he. I don't think he called me memory guy. Although that would be a great line. I think he said. uh, uh, I think he. I think he did like compliment my memory when I asked him quite boring question about Deli Ali's tactical role in the team um but it's just always funny because in that kind of situation you're not like attuned to there being camera there so you're always likely to like pull a stupid face or pick your nose or be be wearing a really badly like a unironed band t-shirt or whatever else is there a possibility you could somehow become a meme like if you you say or oh do something God. or you're caught on camera doing something weird 
or or you know you know like where they have the the subtitles across the bottom of the screen of Mourinho saying a thing and it cuts to you and you're you're on the screen looking gone and Mourinho is saying you know some kind of classic Jose Zinger and you're you're on screen looking like an idiot I mean I, I you know it's possible isn't it I'd never considered that but now you say it I'm I'm terrified that I might get memes I just hope that I hope that that doesn't happen Right now, we're offering listeners of this show the opportunity to try out The Athletic for free. You can enjoy all of our great writing on Spurs, including a recent article that Charlie and I did on why Mourinho is willing to give Ryan Sessegnon a chance this season, looking at his prospects, his development, the interest in taking him on loan from clubs all across Europe. Charlie's also recently just done an inside story on how Tottenham have revamped their academy setup for the new season. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod to sign up for a 30-day free trial. That's theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. Next question is from Tim T. If Spurs were playing their first league game tomorrow, notwithstanding potential incomings or outgoings, what would the first 11 be and what formation, James? I actually think this would be quite boring. Like, I think if, if there was a league game tomorrow and we were ignoring kind of... Uh, transfers and um people who are still uh isolating then i think the team is going to be quite similar to last season isn't it you're probably aurier is probably still going to be the right back larice is obviously going to be in goal um we'll come on to joe hart a bit later on i think uh i i imagine you're you're probably talking about Udavar and dyer at the in the center of defense and davis at left back hoiberg is obviously going to come in and then you're going to have I mean, this is where you've got the decision, isn't it? As we've said before, I think you're probably talking about La Celso and, I mean, he does seem to like Sissoko, doesn't he? So I wouldn't be surprised if it was those two. And then, yeah, Kane up front, Son and Lucas seems to be his boy, isn't he, Lucas? So that would be my sort of prediction for what the team that Mourinho would pick. It's hard to disagree with that. Like, I think I think there's basically one place up for grabs, which could be Sissoko, Winks, Deli or Ndombele. I think, and probably I can't really see any other way, any other way he could do it. Like he's not going to play Dyer in midfield anymore. He, I suppose he could he could play Sanchez instead of Dyer or Toby at centre back. But beyond that, I think it's pretty much set. Um, obviously, there's question marks over Aurier. We'll get onto him later, uh, and Dombele and their futures at the club. But until then, I think we kind of know ten of the eleven players who'll be playing for Spurs on the weekend of the twelfth of September. Next question. This is a fun one from Brandon H. Which player do you think our perception will change on the most by this time next year, James? Right. Now, I, it's got to be Ndombele, isn't it? Because half half of the fans think he's absolute garbage and half think he's the best player in the world and has been sort of much maligned and put upon and treated really badly. So whatever happens, it feels like half of the fan base are going to get their opinion changed drastically because either he's going to be terrible again or, or, or sorry, I should say, not great again. Um, and the people who think he's really good will sort of start to question him and doubt him and, you know, he'll have lost the benefit of a doubt for it being his first season and whatever else, or he'll be absolutely incredible and consistent and be able to play a full 90 minutes and the doubters will be won over and he'll be seen as some kind of demigod. So logically, I would say it would, have, it would be in Dumbele. Yeah, I think that has to be the right answer. I think there's so there's so much variance as to what will happen with Dumbele. I don't even know if he'll still be at Tottenham next year, I'm sure. You know, Tottenham obviously haven't got anywhere on getting rid of him yet. Um, I'm sure they would if they could. 
I mean, he could go away to Barcelona or PSG or somewhere and have a fantastic season. And then in the year's time, he'll be worth his transfer value again, his transfer fee, £55 million. Or he might go away and have a terrible season and then that will vindicate the critics. Or like you say, James, he could have another season on the bench or a season playing really well in the team. Like I just, I don't know who Ndombele will be playing for next season. I don't know how well he'll do. But given how divided people are on him at the moment, I... I'd like to think that there'll be some kind of resolution one way or the other. I think, you know, we, I mean, we've talked about this a million times. I'm still on the kind of pro and side of the argument, I think. There's one other name that springs to mind when I'm thinking about this question. That's Eric Dyer. I really think things are set up for Dyer to have a very good season at centre-back. He's obviously had a pretty difficult few years with injuries, illness, lost his fitness, lost his place in the team, didn't know whether he was going to be a centre-back or a midfielder, speculation about his future, all the rest of it. But now he's fit, he's settled, he knows his best position, he's in line to play in his best position at centre-back, um, he's got his new contract. I kind of I kind of feel like things, is, things are set up for Dyer to have a good season at centre-back this year. And it yeah. might, you know, it might well be that in a year's time, he is... I mean, frankly, the Euros are in less than a year's time, but it might well be that by the end of this season, he's had a good season at centre-back, he's played most of the games, and he's England, and he's playing at centre-back for England, because I don't think either of those places in Southgate's team are locked down at the moment. I mean, it is, it is crazy with Dyer, isn't it? You know, and, we, and we talk about this positional uncertainty that he's had over the last 12 months. But if you, actually, if you look back to his first three seasons at Spurs, so 14 to, what would it be, 16, um, you know, he played mostly at right-back, I think, in the first season, mostly in, at centre-back in the second season and then mostly in midfield in the third season. Yeah, yeah. So he played in those three positions in those, in those first like three seasons. And yeah, and then kind of progressed really well. And the stuff you say about like illnesses and whatever, you that, that's kind of been forgotten, hasn't it, I think? That people people have just sort of, that, that slipped people's mind. I mean, I'd, I'd completely forgotten about that, to be honest. For him to kind of have a, a pretty good idea that his position is going to be centre-back for the next... X years, I think will help him a lot, like in terms of like mental and technical preparation for matches. I just think like training in that position every week, knowing that's where he's going to be playing going forward, you can just see that that's going to help him a lot on on the pitch. Yeah, I completely agree. So I'm quite, I feel quite optimistic about Dyer's season. Now, uh, next one is from John D. Where does Delhi fit in? He looks increasingly like the odd man out in the Spurs midfield. Is it worth Spurs cashing in on him? Well, yeah, it, that, that is a difficult one. And, and I, I would agree with John on that, in that if Spurs do play with something more akin to a 4-3-3, then it's hard to see where Dele Alli fits in, really. I mean, it's hard to see exactly where he'll play because he's, he's not really consistently shone playing playing deep in midfield in a, in a three or in a two. Um, and he hasn't really shown much to suggest that he'd thrive in one of those wide positions. So actually, you'd say the most likely position that he could play in that system would be as like a centre forward. And obviously he's not going to be first choice there, well, for the time being at least. So, I mean, that is definitely a valid question. Uh, I, I think I think that's something that he's going to have to really consider himself because I, there aren't many other teams that he could go to and play as a sort of, a, a, like a number 10 who drifts into the box, which is kind of where he's done his best work for Spurs. Like effectively as a shadow striker who kind of drifts in and out, out of games, but then comes alive when the ball is kind of coming into the penalty area. There aren't many teams, you know, if you look at like the other top sides in the Premier League, you know, Liverpool Liverpool wouldn't be able to accommodate a player like that. Uh, I don't really see that Manchester United would be able to accommodate a player like that. Chelsea wouldn't 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 need or want a player like that. So it or, or Manchester City. 
So it, it kind of it kind of feels like he may have sort of been left behind a little bit in the in the recent t- tactical evolution in the Premier League, and he he needs to kind of work out now whether he's going to be a central midfielder, like a sort of number eight, or whether he's going to be a wide forward who I guess. I suppose it would be best suited to sort of predominantly playing on the left and then cutting in onto his right. But then obviously that's where Son is playing now. So it, it does kind of feel, yeah, like he is at a bit of a crossroads. Um, as for whether or not he would be a player worth selling, I mean, I think it would be a bit of a shame to cash in on him just just for the sake of it, just because he feels like he doesn't fit in in, in the system that we're sort of dabbling with right now. Um, that, that, I still think that I'd be a little bit short-sighted unless they had like an incredible offer and they knew that they'd be able to invest the money on one or two players who would clearly massively improve the team. But I, I mean, I certainly think that's gonna that could be a consideration next summer. Yeah, I'm not. Um, it's weird, isn't it? Looking back at the first first few weeks of the Mourinho era, where Delhi played really well and it felt like everything was set up for Delhi to um, you know, to to flourish under Mourinho, and yet. The sort of last few months, I mean, I know he's had hamstring injuries again, but the second half of the season, when actually the team improved, it wasn't really with Delhi in it. And now I think, like you say, like the, the big problem he's got is he's a player who can only play, I think, in really in one particular way in a system that is built around him. And it might well be that Spurs think that the best way, their best way this, this season is to have that 4 2 3 1 with Hoybjerg and Lacelso sitting, and then they can play Delhi as a 10. And, and build him a platform that way, and it might. It, I suppose it could work well, but equally there are other directions the team might want to go in. I wouldn't be buying shares in Dali Ali right now. And also, like you say, like I, I just, can't, I just don't think there's a market for him. Like I know that, and I think that, I think that's really been the case for the last few years now. Is that the interest that everyone expected when Dali Ali broken onto the scene for him from other teams? It hasn't really been there because he is quite a, he's quite a unique. He's quite a rare player, and I don't think he's that like. Um, what I, what's the phrase I'm looking for here? Uh, I don't think he's that like. <laughs> and it sounds like I'm talking about Brexit. Oven ready? Like I don't think he's kind of like he's not like plug and play. Like I don't think you could take him from Tottenham and put him in a different team, and he'd be really good. I think that's really kind of the point. Um, and so I'm, I I don't know if they I don't think they can sell him, and he's you know he's just signed a signed a long contract about eighteen months ago, so he's not going anywhere. I don't really know where exactly he fits in. I mean, he's he's an intelligent player, and he is a, a guy with like a really good mentality. I think as a player as well, so I wouldn't like necessarily doubt that he could adjust his game to fit into what you might call a more fashionable system. But it's whether or not he can do that quickly enough to establish himself, because you know, you know as well as I do that if, it, if you struggle for two years and then suddenly you're massively out of favour on it can be quite difficult to sort of establish yourself again. If you look at someone like Ross Barkley, who probably wasn't quite hitting the same heights as Deli Alley three or four years ago, or five or six years ago, but was certainly sort of being talked about in a similar way. Now, I don't think anyone would really consider him for... I know he ended up going to Chelsea on a cheap, but I don't think anyone would really consider... If he left Chelsea, he wouldn't be going to another one of the like top six or seven clubs, would he? No, no, certainly wouldn't. Uh, question here from Alex K. Jelski. Hi, Alex. Um, do you think there's any world in which Hart displaces Larice? Uh, uh, no, no, I can't. We can answer some I, of these questions quite quickly, can yeah. we? Uh, Larice, I think Larice is one of the most improved players under so the second half of the season. Yeah, absolutely. He was really good, really good. Yeah, yeah, he really was. 
we talked about Hart last week. I think Hart is probably quite a clever signing. I think he'll bring a lot to the table on and off the pitch. He's basically just not been nearly as good as Lloris for a long time. Like the last time Hart was better than Lloris would have been like eight years ago or seven years ago. So I, I'd be surprised. Lloris has had a sort of a bit of an unfortunate habit of picking up like the odd injury or even sort of a, a little spell of illness over the course of a season. And having said last week, you could kind of see that Hart could potentially oust Gazaniga and become the number two. If that were to happen and then Larissa was to get an injury, then obviously there, you can sort of imagine a world where Joe Hart is playing a Premier League game for Tottenham Hotspur. But I don't think it would be a situation where people that there'd be then be a clamour for him to be starting games when Larissa came back, like we had this season with Gazaniga for some reason. Good one here from Jonathan F. Troy Deeney on a one-year loan as a backup to Kane. Discuss. Not for me, I don't think. I mean, I like Troy Deeney and he's, you know, had a really good sort of, what will it be, five years in the Premier League. But I don't, I, I don't really think that as a good fit. I don't, I'm not sure he'd be like, because what you want is a player who can either play instead of Kane or also play with Kane, which is almost certainly going to be like, Whoever 2020's Loic Remy is, who is that? Because you want somebody who can play up front and play out wide, really, don't you? I think. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the kind of play you want. And I just don't I don't really think you could have Troy Deeney leading the line on his own effectively in a team, like pushing for a Champions League place or playing in Europa League or whatever. So, yeah, I just don't I just don't think that would be quite right uh, for me, anyway. Um, I, I know people, I've seen that people are keen on the idea from what I've seen on Twitter and, and whatever else, but... Um, I, to me, that doesn't strike me as something that would work particularly well. Yeah, it's I, I I can see the I can see the best justification for it on like Joe Hart grounds in the sense that Mourinho obviously wants like leaders, big characters, uh, talkers in in and around the place, as they say in football. And who is a bigger leader, talker, a character around the place in football right now than Troy Deeney? I mean, if if Spurs signed Deeney, they would have the number one and number two. Uh, leaders and talkers in in the Premier League. There'd be a lot of fronting up going on there, wouldn't there as well? There would be so much fronting up going on. It would be almost... I, I almost physically can't imagine how much fronting up there would be. I mean, what happens if, if those two players... If Hart and Deeney both play in a match, right, and the team loses, who does a post-match interview? Because they're both going to want to front up. Yeah, but I am... Um, you know what? Like, footballistically, I can just about see it. Like, I think Spurs... I think Spurs have always needed an experience back up to Kane, and they've always struggled with the fact that no one they've had as an alternative to Kane has been good enough. Yeah, I just, it just feels like it's two years too late, I think, for Dini. Maybe. I mean, they got Llorente two years too late, and he and he managed to contribute a bit. <laughs> yeah, but it took him about two years to get there, didn't it? I think that was the thing of Llorente. It could be a kind of Llorente type, type player. And, just, and also, frankly, I think sometimes that they need, particularly given how they play now, like, it might be helpful to have someone they can hit another person they can hit it long to, uh, if they're one 0 down with five minutes left. I, look, I, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. I don't. I don't have any specific information about it. I, it wouldn't be a loan because this is the last year of Dini's contract. So Spurs would have to buy him, but I don't think he'd be very expensive. I quite like the sound of it. Like even just talking about it is making me more excited about the possibility of it happening. I mean, as a journalist covering a team, it's great, isn't it? Because there's, there's loads, there's loads to say and write about that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It would be, uh, it it would be a really, really interesting one. And also, like Spurs are going to have tons of games next year. Yeah, yeah we talked yeah. about this last week. Like Capital One Cup, Europa League. They're going to be playing Thursday, Sunday, Thursday, Sunday for a lot of the season. And you know, you can't ask 
I think that one thing the Spurs have learned in the last few years is you actually can't ask Harry Kane to play every single game through the season because he's going to get injured at some point. If they haven't learned that by now, they never will. <laughs> yeah, quite. The View from the Lane is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We have gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom while in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving! Next one here from Luke W. Does Gedson's newfound role as a right-back signal that we will not replace Aurier with a new signing, should he leave? Well, I think on this one, like... So, look, Spurs are trying to sell Aurier... um, and they are trying to get in a new right back, and I don't think they can do one without the other. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of money to go around this summer. They've already bought Hoiberg, so I think ideally they would find somewhere, someone in, uh, you know, a club abroad, for example, where they could, who they could sell Aurier to. There's some talk in Milan, but I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. And then they could get in someone else, you know. So uh, Mehmet Zeki Celik, the Turkish right back at Lille, I think is a sort of favoured one of Mourinho. But they can't really do anything until they can move Aurier. Um, so obviously, Jensen played there the other day. Do I think he could do it? Honestly, no. Um, I just don't think he's especially. I don't think he's very good uh, from what we've seen so far. I also don't really think he fits the profile of a Mourinho right back. Like we know that Mourinho wants his fullback to be a big guy who's going to win headers, who's not going to get outmuscled at the far post, who can tuck into a back three and let the opposite side fullback attack. All that stuff, and that's why you know Selic is attractive, and that's why I think he that's why he wants a Thomas Mounier. Remember at the uh, back towards the end of of the season, and obviously he ended up going to Borussia Dortmund instead. So that's the kind of profile that he's looking for. And I look at Gedson, I think well, he's kind of quite talented, but he's very he's kind of very skinny, and I don't really think he's got the physicality to do that job for Mourinho. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, having seen Mourinho seemingly just like completely not interested in playing uh, Foyt there. I find it hard to imagine that he would look at Gedson and see him as like a, a sort of long-term, full-time option for that position. Um, whether or not, you know, he ends up filling in there at some point over the course of the season, that's a slightly different question. But I'd be very surprised if if uh, Gedson Fernandez being even sort of plan C or D as, as a right-back for next season uh, was the case. Yeah. And here's one from John M. Has Mourinho really changed after Manu debacle? And has the team truly bought into his somewhat new approach of being less acerbic? Has he really changed? Honestly, I don't think so. Um, I just don't think that managers really change that much at that stage in their career. Like Mourinho is fifty-seven. He's been a you know he's been working. He's been a manager for twenty years. He's been working in football for thirty years. He's very very far progressed through his career. And I just don't think he's suddenly going to fundamentally change his approach. At this stage, I might, you know, I might well be proven wrong. I think the football that we've seen so far uh, has been pretty much in keeping with 
what we would normally expect from Mourinho. It's pragmatic, it's tactical. He's not afraid to give up the ball, defend deep, play on the break. I think his relationships with players, in terms of the way he's been very critical of them in public, both in Dombele and then the players in general after the Sheffield United game, has itself been classic Mourinho. Like, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Like, I, I don't know whether it will have the same impact in the third season that it did on Chelsea Part 2 or Manchester United. I'd be probably, if I was Spurs, I'd be quite worried that it might do. Um, and I think, it, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely down on Mourinho either. I think that they did improve a lot in the second half of last season. I think they're well set up to have a good season this year. I'm expecting them to be kind of in and around fourth or fifth position. Uh, and I think that they're well set up to, to win a lot of games. I, I would just be suspicious of the idea that the Mourinho at Tottenham is radically different from the Mourinho of Man United or Chelsea Part 2. No, I mean, I'd agree with that. I mean, what I would say is that from his perspective, his way of doing things has still worked more often than it hasn't, right? I mean, if you look if you look back for his career, and we know, you know, he had that nightmare season at Chelsea and then one pretty bad season at, at Manchester United as well. I'm sure he would, you know, if he was laying out his CV for us, he would say, well, that's two seasons or whatever out of 18 years in management. So, uh, you know, I, I I suspect his position would be that, that there's not really any reason for him to change. Uh, wh- <laughs> I, whether or not that actually works in Spurs' favour, as you say, remains to be seen. But um, I, I'd be very surprised if he was looking to do things particularly differently now. Yeah, I think one thing one thing you could say on the kind of like optimistic about Mourinho column is that it might well be that this this job is better suited to him than the United job. I think he's always if you look at Mourinho's career, he's always done his best work when he was with a team who had a kind of underdog feel or who were trying to achieve something they hadn't achieved before. And I think, you know, that was true at Chelsea and Porto and Inter. And I think, frankly, he like he doesn't he struggles a little bit in jobs like you know like Real Madrid or Man United, where you're managing the biggest teams in the world, and the fans are very demanding for a certain side of football, and also the players kind of feel like superstars and they want to be loved and adored and everything. And it might well be that now he's taken this, frankly, step down into a Tottenham Tottenham sized job, where there is a sense of being an underdog and wanting to win the first trophy of the era, and the players are not superstars really. It might be that, and the players pro- will probably respect him a bit more than someone, you know, than Sergio Ramos or Iker Casillas or players who think that they're above, like, following out Mourinho's instructions to a team. So I do think, when, when I'm feeling optimistic about Mourinho, I do think that it might well be that the size of job that he stepped into at Spurs will be better suited to his approach than Real Madrid or Man United. Next one is from Isaac S., how much do the owners value Spurs at? I was reading an article and it said about 800 million. Do you think they'll be selling anytime soon? Uh, great question, Isaac. This is a topic that we covered in our big profile of Daniel Levy that I did with Charlie that we published last month. Um, I think the I think the valuation of Spurs is higher than that. I think it's about two billion pounds. Um, I think that Levy has been talking to potential investors over the course of the last year or so. Um, uh, there's a lot of interest in the club, particularly from NFL owners in the US and from private equity firms. Obviously, no deal has been done yet. I think that I think coronavirus means that a deal is less likely, uh, but it might well be the case that they sell an equity stake rather than selling the whole club. Um, 
but because I do think that you know it's obviously hard to judge now with coronavirus and everything has completely changed what what you can expect in this sort of situation. But a lot of the building blocks are there at Tottenham for a very very valuable club. They've got a, the best stadium I think in the country, which costs costs more than a billion pounds to build. They've got the prospects of lots of lots of non football events at the grounds uh, as long as there is a coronavirus vaccine or bat bans on mass gatherings go away um the prospect of nfl games very attractive and tottenham is a very well-run business you know it makes a lot of money the wage bill isn't especially high relative to the turnover or at least the turnover before coronavirus so in theory i think spurs have got a lot of the, of the ingredients to be a very valuable club but equally i can't see there being i don't think there'll be a takeover or any external investment for quite a while just because of the economic circumstances uh, this one is from david h would you rather be liverpool with a stadium in need of an upgrade and a champions league and a premier league trophy in the last two years or tottenham home to an nfl franchise lady gaga and guns and roses <laughs> i mean that feels like quite a, quite an easy question to answer to be honest I think as a fan, you you would you'd kind of just look at the shorter term and just take take the glory and the trophies and then sort of, you know, worry about tomorrow at one minute past midnight, right? That's that's kind of how it works. I don't, I, and this isn't me saying they shouldn't have built the stadium and they should have spent a billion pounds on the football team, but I think if you're presented with those two options, I, I think any any support any supporter would say they would rather win the Champions League and the Premier League than have the stadium. As good as it is to be able to buy a pint of uh, Beaver Town for £5. Look, I'm sure all fans would agree that Liverpool fans would be happy with how the last few years have turned out than Tottenham. I do think that in Daniel Levy's defence, you can't really predict for who's going to win the trophies, whereas you do know that building the best stadium is going to make the club like it's like the safest bet in the long yeah. in the long term on the future. Yeah, look, I mean we've said a few times, you know, he uh, Daniel Levy has been massively unlucky with the timing of every, more or less everything that's happened in the last 5 years. They kind of had this stadium, you know, it was a thing they were planning and talking about for like, over a decade. Uh, and it just so happened that the thing was finished at the point where the team on the pitch were in decline. Uh, and it meant that they couldn't strengthen in a way that they otherwise may have done or certainly needed to do. As I think Pochettino mentioned a couple of times down the years, I don't think the plan was for the team to peak in 2017. I think the plan was for the team to peak in sort of 2019-20. And obviously, no one could have seen that uh, we'd get this global pandemic that would mean as soon as the stadium was built, no one could, could go in there and they'd lose all that revenue. So, you know, at either side of that, stadium opening has been a sort of well, one, one, one good thing that wasn't timed quite correctly on one obviously massively catastrophic thing that's meant from a business perspective as Spurs um, you know it's been quite damaging or massively damaging so uh, you know in reality uh, a lot of the sort of uh, negative points have been things that you kind of you couldn't really mitigate but uh, you know <laughs> if I'm answering this question which of those two things I prefer as much as I love, uh, I mean, I really don't like like Guns and Roses are terrible. They're rubbish. No one, no one would prefer that. I would rather if, if this makes me wrong, let me know. But I would rather have won the Champions League than be able to say that Axel Rose turned up at the stadium. That, that's all I can say. James, are there any bands that you would have wanted to see at the stadium so oh. much that you would have gone to see them over the prospect of Spurs winning a Champions League? You know as well as I do that the, that the Cribs are the best band of all time, right? 
I mean, that is true categorically. Because I, I know because I, you were at a gig that I was at, right? Like That's 15 true. years ago. That's yes. our origin story, really. Yes. Southampton Joiners in about 2005. Yeah. It's a good gig. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, cause I, I was going to do, I was going to do a joke here about how oh, I thought you'd be a big Red Hot Chili Peppers fan before I realised you do actually have the same taste in music. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Well, I, I don't know whether the Crips would get like a hundred thousand people into that stadium, but I mean, no, no, the Crips probably wouldn't, but uh, maybe they could open for Lady Gaga. But I had, um, I did think that like as cool as all those uh, attractive events that Spurs are having at the new stadium are, I actually wouldn't go to any of them. Like I don't like Lady, I quite, quite like Lady Gaga, but I wouldn't pay like a hundred quid to go and see yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of like... feel the same about like a lot of these pop acts that do these, con- like, like uh, they're, they're probably, they're like, they're quite good to listen to, but I don't think I'd pay, yeah, like you say, I wouldn't pay big money to go and watch them. I Actually, now I say that I probably would go and see Dua Lipa and Taylor Swift, but I wouldn't, I'm not sure I'd go and see Lady Gaga because she probably would be expensive. And I definitely wouldn't go and see the Rugby League, Rugby Union, NFL. I mean, that's that's even worse. Or what else is there? If they if they had like sport, other sports I actually like, like cricket or baseball there, then I probably would, but I, they're not going to have cricket or baseball on a football pitch. The economy is getting back underway, and with it, the world of sport. With Bloomberg and The Athletic, you can stay ahead of the curve thanks to two world-class news desks covering developments across finance, economics, technology and sports. Subscribe to Bloomberg.com and, if you are not already a subscriber to The Athletic, for a limited time you can receive a complimentary Athletic subscription. Go to Bloomberg.com forward slash subscribe to sign up today. Okay, one last question here from Tom P. Seeing Bale's situation in Madrid and Ozil's at Arsenal, plus the impact on Barca of their crazy wage structure, do you think more teams will follow Levy's lead in terms of tightly controlling wages and spend, and therefore a reduction in the money spent? I think this is a really good question, and I definitely think we'll see a bit of a downturn in top salaries paid by clubs to top players in the last few years. Because the one thing that's obvious is that the more clubs play to players, the harder it is for them to shift. And given that, you know, managers and players fall out all the time and you never really know who's going to still be in your first team plans in four years' time, it just doesn't really make sense for clubs to give these massive contracts anymore. Yeah. And I do think more teams will move towards... like every, Well, more like, incentivised contracts, basically. Yeah, definitely. Or shorter contracts or just not, not committing these ridiculous sums. Because he... And I think every team will look at Ozil and Bale and think, God, I really, really wouldn't want that to happen, happen to our club because it just it just kills the club to have that, that sort of thing going on. So I mean, I they, are, think- they are two really similar things, aren't they? They, they both moved in that summer of 2013. So they've both been at those clubs for seven years and they've both had like really good moments and, you know, had spells where they've looked like among the best players in the world or certainly the best players in their in their respective leagues. But in the last sort of two years, they've, they've fallen out of favour and... As you say, you know, when a player is on, you know, 200, 300 grand a week, <laughs> there are very, very few clubs, even the, you know, even the batshit crazy clubs who chuck money around, you know, uh, COVID notwithstanding, I mean, even those clubs would kind of wince at the idea of paying that much money to someone who's the wrong side of 30. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see a decrease in top salaries paid for players, or at least like you said, a different type of contract. And clubs... Clubs also being a bit less... I think a lot of it with Ozil and Bale is that the clubs were so desperate not to lose the player on the cheap or on a free, having invested so much money in them, that then, like, even when it was clear that the player was on the way out or on a sort of downturn, they then offered them, like, a re-extension to their contract on even more money. 
like Ozil getting that 350k a week deal, which he got in the kind of towards the end of the Wenger reign, just because Arsenal already lost Sanchez, it didn't want to lose Ozil as well, was like one of the worst decisions in Arsenal's last sort of five or ten years. Uh, equally, the sort of other contracts that Real Madrid have given to Bale haven't worked out for them because they now can't shift him. So I'm sure people will move in Levy's direction. That said, Chelsea are obviously taking advantage of what's happening this year and spending a lot of money to get a big strategic advantage over their rivals. So I think you could also say that a lot of it will just come down to who who can afford to push the boat out most in the transfer market. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think any club of a rich backer who's... Uh wealth hasn't been massively impacted on by by the lockdown um that they're going to be fine aren't they? they're going to be able to carry you know particularly with ffp seemingly being a bit more relaxed now or feeling like less of a threat um you know you can see that clubs like that would feel a bit more free to you know revamp their squads with expensive young players and then kind of roll with the punches after that absolutely um well that's all we've got time for today thank you very much james and our producer tom uh, thank you very much to everyone who sent questions in. They were really good and we could have talked for a lot longer going through all 93 of them. We will be back again next week where we're going to take a look at the first three episodes of All or Nothing. That's the Amazon documentary about Tottenham Hotspur, which we're all very excited about. And then we'll only be a few weeks away from the start of the season. Thanks very much for your time. See you next week. Mm-hmm.